the book of Habakkuk. Hopefully you have turned there. Um, the book of Habakkuk is known as a minor prophet inside the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, through this uh, sermon series called God is the Gospel, we've had the opportunity to preach a lot through the Old Testament, um, which I really, really have enjoyed and has rekindled um, just my love for the Old Testament and stories I'd completely forgotten about, um, as we can often just find ourselves in the, the normal routine of going to the Gospel of John. And, and let me hear you, the Gospel of John and Habakkuk are both the infallible, inspired Word of God, um, and yet out of just complacency or not really wanting to be stretched, or it takes us a little bit more of a think tank to press into some of the Old Testament scriptures, um, I've just... Um, really received much pleasure and joy in thinking about God in this series, uh, God is the Gospel, by really focusing on a lot of Old Testament passages and pictures of who God is. Habakkuk um, is a word that as growing up I could not pronounce. I just knew that it was in there, and uh, I don't think I ever read it as a child, and yet Habakkuk is this small three-chaptered um, book by one of what's called the Minor Prophets. And what's interesting about the book of Habakkuk is, is that typically when, when you are looking at the prophets, they are these men of God that have been sent by God to deliver a message to God's disobedient people, all right? So that's pretty much like all that you see, uh, a lot taking place inside of the prophets is God sending these men and these men being told by God to tell his people to repent, that, that doom is coming, that pain is coming because of their disobedience, that God is going to discipline them and that they need to return from the worship of golden calves and false idols and all these sorts of things to worship the one and truly only God the God of the Scripture, Yahweh himself, the, the great I Am. But when you get to the prophet or to the book of Habakkuk, it's, it's a very different scene from that. See, the cycle of Israel's history, this repetitive nature that I covered last week in our sermon, this history of worshiping other gods, being put into bondage, repenting, turning back to God, God delivering them from bondage, and then turning right back to worshiping other false gods, has now been taking place for hundreds of years. This is the endless cycle of the people of God. And so when we get to the book of Habakkuk, it's not God sending Habakkuk, this man, to, to go to these people and say, repent, repent, turn back to God. But it's the prophet coming to God and saying, God, what you're doing is, let's put it in southern phrase, is jacked up. What you're doing, God, does not make sense. And so we see this dialogue, this, this prayer taking place between God's man, God's prophet, and him, the, if you look at your Bible there, it will say complaining to God. And then God responds, then Habakkuk complains again, then God responds, and then Habakkuk is changed. And so that's what's going to be taking place here inside the text and context as we look at this man named Habakkuk and his prayer life and his conversation with God. See, Habakkuk had become weary of waiting. He had become weary of waiting. See, one of the marks as we've covered inside the Advent series is that the people of God has always been a waiting people, an actively waiting people, but waiting nonetheless. And Habakkuk has become weary of waiting. He's tired of God's people constantly being destroyed. He's tired of the evil. He is tired of the disease. He is tired of the carnage that is causing Habakkuk to really waver on who is God. And God's character. See, here's one of the key things that you need to get about the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is praying. 
He's crying out to God from the the depths of despair. He is seeking to reconcile his understanding of who God is and God's supremacy and, and God's sovereignty and God's holiness and God's grace and God's power and God's peace and God's hope. He's trying to reconcile all those character and attributes and those natures of God with what is he experiencing with what he's, what he's seeing, with the life that is happening all around him. See, he's wrestling with this idea that, God, if, if you are good, if, if you are for us, then why is there so much pain? Why is there so much sorrow? Why is there so much grief in and around us? How can I reconcile what I see, what I'm, what I'm going through, and your character? How can God be good when there is so much evil in the world? I had a college student recently tell me that in the paper that she does not believe and simply it's because when she looks at what's happening inside of the world with its pain, its sorrow, its disease, um, all of the, the happenings of earthquakes and mass deaths and all this sort of stuff that if God does exist then he must not be good because he is doing absolutely nothing on the planet. So therefore I refuse to believe in him. Habakkuk is lamenting. Laments, we see these a lot inside the book of Psalms. It's this passionate plea inside of sorrow. See, Habakkuk is in great agony with what he's seeing when he looks across the scope of God's people and he's looking upon them and and he's looking upon what's happening inside the world and it causes deep agony and sorrow inside of him. He is asking real questions. His questions are deep. His his questions are, are filled with doubts and those doubts weigh and press in on this prophet named Habakkuk. See, the people of God have wandered from their God. They're an adulterous, sinful, wretched, depraved community. So in these prayers that we're going to see today, that he begins to call God's attention. He begins to call God on it. God, if this is who you are, then why are your people acting like this? Why is disease coming to your people? Why are they worshiping other gods? God's word has lost its place inside the people of God. The authority of God and his people is is waning. This led to the people being extremely violent and disobedient. And all of this is being tolerated by Israel's leaders. Habakkuk is not trying to make light of their disobedience, yet struggles to see how God is doing anything good to change it. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. Look at what it says. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. See, we get this picture inside the very first verse inside of Habakkuk that this has not been the first day of crying. That this has not been the first day of crying out to God, but he has become weary of the wait. He has been actively waiting. Again, he is crying out to God. He is seeking God. He is praying to God. He is daily coming before the Lord. And now he's asking for help. How long shall I cry for help? And you not do anything about it. And you not bring healing. Are are you hearing us, God? Are you hearing me, God? Are you seeing the violence? Are you watching the news, God? Are you seeing the death caused by sin? Are you just seeing the abortions called by sin? Are you seeing, as we've seen in our news, the, the, the just sexual harassment that is taking place inside of our world? Are you seeing all of this wretchedness? And yet, there are those of us, there's the remnant that is crying out to you, God, and you are doing nothing about it. 
How long? How long should I cry for help? How long will you not hear me? How long will you not see? Habakkuk is, is saying, do something, God. Come on, what, what is going on here? What is wrong with this picture? Are you not seeing this? Are, are you not listening? Habakkuk is crying out to God to do something, and yet nothing changes. Nothing. Similarly, King David in Psalm 13.1 says, Lord, how long will you forget about me? How long will you hide your face from me? Describing this scene in Habakkuk, one of the commentators said this, The prophet has continually sought the Lord for relief from the burden of human misery piled up every day in the streets of the cities of Judah and the halls of justice in the land. He has witnessed a society that has been falling apart in terms of its moral fabric. From the political leaders to the common people, everyone seems to have plunged themselves into the moral madness. Everyone seems to have forsaken the Lord and His covenant with His people. Everyone seems to be striving for personal pleasure and self-promotion. See, the world during Habakkuk's time is, is going to hell in a handbasket. And the people of God are the handle to the basket. They were not distinct. They were not different. They were just like the world. And this was causing strife upon strife upon strife and upon strife. And, and, and it appears as though they are deeply immersed in the wickedness that is all around them. They are intertwined. They are woven together in the very fabric of the sinful culture and yet are completely indifferent to it all. In Habakkuk um, chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, God responds, God answers. He tells Habakkuk something that completely floors and shocks the prophet. Inside the verses 5-11, through 11, God responds, and in this, he tells his prophet, after hearing him cry and cry and cry and ask and seek God's help and healing, um, God tells Habakkuk that he is going to raise up a group of people called the Babylonians. These were the sworn enemies of the people of God. And that God was going to raise up the Babylonians, and guess what these Babylonians are going to do? They're going to conquer the Israelites as a sign of divine discipline. The Bible tells us and gives us a picture of the Babylonians that these are hostile people, that they are kind of animalistic, that they are very arrogant, that they, they saw something the Babylonians did and they took it. They didn't ask for permission. They went and took by whatever means necessary. They moved from place to place, leaving nothing but the burnt smell of burning timber and death. That's God's answer. See, we've made an idol out of patriotism in America. And it's extremely dangerous in the church. We'll say things like, God would never allow America to fall. And that is not the Bible. See, God will use whatever means necessary, even a terroristic, evil, false, demonic religion, and so on and so forth, to bring God's people back to Himself. And that's exactly what he is doing here. And they deserve it. But they don't believe they do. 
That's not the answer. I mean, we would imagine in our kind of culture that God would kind of swipe from one side to the other, back to joy, back to, to pleasure, that we would put an Instagram of some sort of scenic ocean or, or sunset or sunrise, and, and we would you know, put it up on the board and say, you know, all things work or, or, or whatever, that God has plans for our life not to harm us or, or any of these sorts of things. And we'll try to hold on to certain aspects of God's character and nature while realizing that God is a loving father that will discipline his children and even use evil to bring about repentance. Is that the God that you serve? Now, needless to say, <laughs> this is not the answer that Habakkuk is looking for. This is not what Habakkuk thinks God is going to do. I mean, think about that. I mean, this prophet is now shocked. He's already hurt. He's already in agony. He's asking God to do something, and God does the antithesis, the opposite of what Habakkuk thinks he should do. Even to the point he's like, okay, I'm going to send your worst enemies to come and destroy you all, and a bunch of you are going to die. Some of you are going to live. You're my remnant. You're my true people. Habakkuk responds to God. Look in verse 12. If my Bible, it's on page 1032, if that helps you any. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk responds. And look how he responds. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, the Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them. You are, the, are of purer eyes than to see this evil and cannot look at wrong. He's saying, man, surely, God, if, if you are holy, then, then you can't even look upon these evil traitors. You can't look upon these enemies. They're, the, they're your enemies. They worship other, they worship demons. You can't be using them. See, the Babylonians are, are worse than the Israelites. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They're pagan worshipers. As I said, they devour nations. They treat people like animals for their own profit and for their own gain. And, and so Habakkuk is wrestling back with this, and he's saying, man, surely, like you're joking, God. There is no way that you would use this pain and suffering in our enemies to do this. Skip on down. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what he says, Habakkuk. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here's the picture. Hebrew, uh, Habakkuk is speaking back to God. He's complaining back to God. Lord, if this is your character, if this is who you say you are, surely you will not do this. Surely you will not allow this. Surely you will not bring this. And I'm so convinced, God, I'm so upset, I'm so complaining against you that I'm going to go to the watchtower. I'm going to stand right here until you speak back to me, until you tell me what is really up and what is really going to happen. See, the watchtower was uh, typically, like it is, is a place where you watch from a tower. It was used for security purposes it's so that you could see that the enemy was coming or that when your troops were coming home, it was a place of lookout. And Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to stand right here until you answer me. I'm going to wait right here. In the early 90s, one of my favorite movies was made. It's called Forrest Gump. I think I saw it five times at the movie theater. Okay? I love that movie, even to this day. And there's this great scene, if you've not seen the movie, 
I wouldn't let my kids watch it, but adults would probably handle it. And inside this scene, there's this, uh, he, he gets to know this guy named Lieutenant Dan and in the army in Vietnam. And Lieutenant Dan, he gets his legs blown off and he wants to die. And yet Forrest saves him. And years later, after the Vietnam War, Lieutenant Dan's in a wheelchair. He's become really angry at the world. He is angry that he is still alive. He has lost his purpose. He is a soldier. Why didn't? All of his lineage is that he comes from a long line of soldiers and generals, and they've all died in battle for us. Why did you let me live? You should have let me die out there in the battlefield. That's what I was destined to do, and yet Forrest does not let him do that. And there's this scene where they meet up, and they go shrimp. They're on the shrimp boat, the Jenny, and they're trying to catch shrimp, and there's all these other shrimp boats, and they're not catching any. And then a storm blows up. And in the scene of the movie, it's just Forrest is running all over the boat and this man with no legs has hoisted himself up to the top of the sail and he's crying out to God and he's saying, God, this is not a storm. You can't shriek, uh, you can't, you know, cause this boat to be destroyed. It, it will not sink. You can't do it. Come on, God, do it. And it's just blowing and the wind and everything else. And the next morning... It wakes up and all the boats in the fleet have been destroyed except for that boat. And Forrest makes this great line. And he says, well, I guess Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God that day. Because Lieutenant Dan was willing to stand in that moment. He had a real moment with God. He wanted to know why? Habakkuk has a similar thing. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm waiting right here. If you are God, if you are good, if you are holy and supreme and sovereign and grace-filled and power-filled and hope-filled and all these sorts of things, then you need to show me because what I'm experiencing right now seems much more like hell in your hands than it does like being in your loving arms. He could do nothing but actively and eagerly wait upon the Lord. See, Habakkuk's heart and his mind and his theology were all going to be stretched in sorrow, in grief, in the wait. See, brothers and sisters, friends, you and I's theology can be really strong when it comes to writing papers or sitting around with a cup of coffee with your friends or, or even, you know, just in discussions with people. See, your, your theology can be really strong, but I want you to know it is at its greatest testing moment and in, in refining moment in your darkest of moments you are going to find out what you really believe about God and what you really believe about his character and nature. And if God is the good news, not at a party, but when you are in the darkest of nights of your life, that's when you're going to find out if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God. That is when you're going to find out if you really believe that God is supreme. It's not just lip service that you can give in the asking of questions of you, but no, it is in the real life experience of pain and sorrow and agony and depression and anxiety and stress. That is when you're going to find out if you believe in the God of the Bible. See, what you and I believe about God shows up in those dark nights. See, one of God's greatest tools, which I hate, by the way, is sanctification through the waiting. 
One of God's greatest tools is a thing called time. And I don't like it. I like quick fixes. I want a God who acts much more like duct tape and super glue and J.B. Well. That stuff's amazing. Than a God who will completely destroy it to rebuild it. God, why are you doing this? What are you doing? Are these questions only asked by Habakkuk and me? What are you doing? Why why would you allow this? Why would you will this? This this current situation, it just, it does not make sense to me. How can I reconcile what I'm seeing with what you say is true? God, can, can I trust you? See, the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that God does as He pleases. Whatever He pleases even if it appears to be evil to us. Can we trust a Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on what we understand? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And I read that and I say, why would you do that? Are you cool with your pastors having doubts? Because one of the three, I don't know Todd Crosby, he's like, he like hovers into rooms. I mean, that's how glorious he is. <laughs> Justin's the prodigal son, and I'm somewhere in the middle. So, you know. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Lord, I'm tired of waiting And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Get this. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God is going to wait to do something for us. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Blessed, or that is often translated joyful. I think to take it too far, some people translate it to mean happiness. And probably during biblical times, happiness would have worked. It doesn't really work for us because we just think of like, I don't know, Miss Doubtfire or somebody kooky. I mean, just over it. Like like my mom, when she wakes up, she's like, hello. You know, I'm not like that. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) Happiness is probably a bad translation for westernized understanding of this. But it means like to exult, exalted, rejoice, blessed are all those. God's going to wait to be gracious to you, but you're blessed if you wait on Him. Galatians, the Apostle Paul, chapter 6, verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Man, I want to shepherd you well. I want to shepherd my own heart well by God's grace. Sometimes I get tired of being good. Weary of, quote-unquote, doing good. I want to give up. Some days it just seems a lot easier if we would just go the way of the world. In the book of Habakkuk, guess what God does? 
He answers him. He doesn't leave him hanging. Oh, brother's not on the watchtower too long. And God shows up. In these verses in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, let's read that. God shows up and tells Habakkuk, I want you, hey, brother, write this down. 2-2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits at a point in time. What's God telling us again? Hey, life is terrible right now for you. It is. You're suffering sorrow, grief, pain, anxiety, depression, all these sorts of things. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. So I'm going to do something, brother. But it, it has an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The Bible tells us here, God tells us, he's like, hey, all right, I've got a vision. He's saying, I've got a plan. I've got something I'm going to do. I have something that I'm going to accomplish, but it has an appointed time. It doesn't hasten to the end. But you can know this, as the Bible tells us, I don't lie. I've proven myself time and time and time and time again. And so as you wait inside suffering, as you wait inside pain, as you suffer through all of these things, you can know that what I'm telling you is the truth. It is going to happen, not on your timetable, but on my timetable. I'm going to accomplish this. If it seems really slow, it's because it is. Wait for it. It will surely come. See, God tells Habakkuk inside the rest of this passage that he is going to do something, that he's going to, to fulfill everything that he has promised to God's people. God is going to restore his people. God is going to eventually destroy the Babylonians. God has never said what the Babylonians are doing to people is good in and of itself. He's saying they're evil. They're a wretched people. They're depraved they are much worse than even the Israelites. But right now, he is even going to use evil as a chiseling tool in his hand to sanctify God's people. See, God cannot lie. He reminds us that his word will always be true. The answer is going to come at an appointed time. There is a future date out there at the right appointed time that all of this is going to make sense. Wait for it, people. Wait for it. Wait for it. But the righteous shall live by faith. This passage inside Habakkuk is quoted three times inside of the New Testament. It's quoted inside the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews as these writers of these letters are constantly reminding us that God has not changed. That the righteous shall live by faith. There are going to be those who turn away. That they're going to get tired of waiting. They're going to get tired and weary and they're going to walk away. Which means that they never really got it to begin with. But the righteous shall live by faith. See, the suffering inside of the book of Habakkuk was caused by the Israelites' own sin. But yet we see in other places inside of Scripture that sometimes suffering is simply caused by sickness. That it's caused by, by storms that ravish things. But also that we can see inside of Scripture that there's a suffering that comes for being faithful to God. Those are the three types of suffering that I see inside of Scripture. Again, you, some of you in this room, you have suffered because of sin in your life. 
All right, some of you have a past maybe of drinking and you have a bodily scar that was caused from a drunken fight one night in a bar. He's laughing because he was there. That is suffering caused by sin. It is the baggage of sin that we carry with us because of things we've done. But get this, there's also God-appointed and God-allowed suffering that comes to you. If you have ever watched someone die from a horrific disease called cancer, then you have seen that suffering. I think of a boy inside of Arizona, wonderful runner. He was a part of our running club, could run like the wind blew. 15, 16 years of age, cancer practically overnight. His parents watched him whittle down to nothing but a skeleton before he died. Suffering. But much of the suffering inside the New Testament, and we like to apply it to all kinds of suffering, but a lot of the suffering that we see even inside the New Testament was not caused by sin. It was not caused just by sickness or what we call acts of God, but it is caused by you preaching and teaching the Word of God no matter what, by being faithful. There's a suffering that's going to come for that. Most of Paul, I mean, by the time um, Paul was a beat-up, scarred old man before he was beheaded for being what? Faithful. Suffering is going to come. See, if you are being faithful to God, then you're probably currently experiencing all three of these. How does that relate? Well, the suffering of my sin is as I mature my relationship with the Lord, you know what God does? He shows me more and more sin in my life, which causes grief, which causes suffering. It causes relationship brokenness between me and my wife, me and my friends, me and my kids. So God is using suffering of sin to what? To show me that this is not like Him. There can be within our lives... Many of us, some people in our church, they have chronic illnesses they're walking through. Others of you, if you've been faithful to Jesus and you have not lost a friendship over your faith, then I challenge you this morning to stop being silent and stop being like the world. Because that's the reason why you have not lost anyone. You must not be being faithful. Because it will happen. Quickly. After hearing God's response, Habakkuk responds. In chapter 3, we see this begin to take place. Habakkuk responds and he begins to tremble at what God has told him. He begins to worship God. His his tone greatly changes inside chapter 3 than when we see that brother spitting in chapter 1. There's a transformation that takes place inside of the prophet Habakkuk. He begins to tremble, as I mentioned. He begins to worship God. His, His tone changes. He hears the word of God and it is transformational inside of his life. He begins in chapter 3 to speak to God and to pray back to God and to remind God that yes, though he is wrathful, he is also merciful. And he goes through the whole Exodus story and he's reminding God of what he did inside of Exodus of delivering from the bondage and slavery and that he is going to one day do that again. We see in the last section here in verse 12 of chapter 3, follow along with me. He says, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced... 
You pierced with his own arrows and, and the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty warriors. So Habakkuk reminds him of what he's done. He reminds him, as he has seen in God's revelation, that God is going to deliver his people once again, that God is about the salvation of his people for the salvation of your anointed. Now, what's interesting about that word in the Hebrew, that the salvation of your anointed, is where we get the word Messiah. God is going to do something. And Habakkuk has come to terms with this. He's come to the realization that, yes, God, you are going to restore these things. You care about your people. You are going to save your people. And in response to God's character and the destroying of his enemies and the salvation of God's people, listen to how Habakkuk responds. Verse 16. I hear these words. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. My body is shaking at the word of the Lord. My, my body is shaking at the realization and the revelation that God is about the salvation of His people, that God is a mighty warrior whose who arrows are never ending, and that He will destroy the enemies of sin, Satan, and death, that the enemies of God's people will get what is coming to them, and at the realization, uh, he comes to this idea as he's just, you know, he's become just a, a, a pool of flesh before God. At the realization that God has not lost his character, that God has a plan, but also that God has called us to wait. Notice that Habakkuk is saying, I will stay here and wait for the day of trouble. What is the day of trouble? The day of judgment for who? For, the, and for those who are invading us. Notice Habakkuk doesn't say, oh, they're not going to invade us anymore. That's not what Habakkuk says because that's not what God says. You know what happened? The Babylonians came and wiped them, just killed them, just destroys them. The pain came. The sorrow came. The agony came. All of it. Habakkuk never got to see what God told him he was going to do. And we get to this passage which is Probably one of the most important passages and one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture as Habakkuk closes out his letter. Listen to the changed, in this, the changed heart in this man. Beginning in verse 17, which Laura read earlier. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be out, cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will Take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He, he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. See, there's a major change that takes place inside of this prophet named Habakkuk. 
And we kind of struggle with the language because we're not, you know, farmers and gatherers and all that sort of thing. But, but to these people, Habakkuk is painting a picture of the worst things imaginable for the people of God. What if there is no wheat? What if, what if the fig tree bears no, no fruit? What if we have no food? What if we have no cattle? I mean, he's essentially painting the picture of, I think, one of the worst deaths ever would be for you and I to starve to death. And Habakkuk is saying, God, even if we starve to death, even if my kid starves to death, what will I do? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God of the Lord, the God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, he makes me tread on high places. So Habakkuk did not get to see the Messiah come as a baby that is laid in the manger. He says, I will wait even till death. I will rejoice in the Lord as I wait for my very captives to come and destroy us and, and to burn us and to, to kill probably thousands, if not millions of people as they come and destroy. I will not give up. Even if the, the rod is shoved into my chest cavity, even if I have no food, even if I'm covered in disease, no matter what comes to me, I will trust God. I will trust His Word. I will believe in a future glory that is out there. This is what Habakkuk is saying. James Montgomery Voice says this, and my judgment, this is the courageous way in which Habakkuk embraces the calamities that he can imagine and nonetheless triumphs over in the knowledge of the love of the Savior. This is the ability that we are peering into a man who is, has the ability to rejoice in the midst of being ripped apart. This joy, this rejoicing is a gift of God. It is from God to us. And yet it is something that you and I, brothers and sisters, that we must fight for. We must fight for this type of joy, this supernatural joy. It's not about our happiness. It is about our holiness. And again, our faith and our theology is tested most in the darkest of hours. Will you and I trust the Lord no matter what happens to you? No matter what happens to your family. Brothers and sisters, if God allows us, and as my daddy says, if the Lord tarries and he doesn't come back, you and I are going to grow old together. And it's more and more, the reality, not to be morbid, but I want you to know we're a young church. We've not buried anyone yet. We've not been to the funeral yet of a baby. And again, not to be morbid, but if we live long enough and grow old enough together, that's probably going to happen. We're going to watch each other get cancer. And I hope this doesn't happen. We're probably going to lose some of our kids along the way. We're going to lose spouses and husbands and wives. Your house may burn down. We're going to lose our parents. These sorts of things are, are going to happen. Suffering is either come to us or come to you or it is on its way. Pain and sorrow and agony and all these sorts of things. And in the, the midst of Christmas, maybe the greatest joy that can be given to us, the greatest gift that can be given to us is for us to learn as a body of believers how to suffer well and to have joy in the midst of that suffering. And maybe your suffering isn't now, but maybe your suffering is coming. And I want you to know that when it comes, 
problems, maybe in front of everybody, you're going to ask all churched up. But in your quiet moments and in your doubts and in your wrestling and your weariness and your waiting upon God, that's when the real tension for you is going to happen as you're wrestling with, man, do I continue on in faith in this Jesus? Or is simply the sorrow too much for me to bear? Is it too much? Will you rejoice in God if He takes everything from you in order to give you everything in His Son Jesus in a future glory? And let's be really honest, that's easy for us to say right now. We often say this, don't we? Well, I can do anything for a season. Anybody who's been on a diet has said that and lied. Well, I can do anything for a season. I mean, through college, it's only a semester. It's only a year. It's only a four years. If you have a kid who's quite ornery, it's only 18 years. I can do anything for a season. If I'll just be patient, it will get better. Man, I love you. Look at me. Look at me. For some of you, it's not going to get any better. This season is going to be called your life. And it's not going to get better. And I'm not going to be one of these guys that stands up here and lies to you and tells you that it is only for a moment of time. This side of heaven, it is not going to get better for some of you. Some of us in this room, you're going to get cancer, and you know what's going to happen? God's going to earthly heal you. And we're going to get to celebrate with you in modern medicine, because I believe that all that is in God's hands as well. And that cancer is never going to come back. But other brothers and sisters in this room, you're going to get cancer, and you know what? You're going to die of that cancer. Some of us in this community of faith are going to walk through cancer and be healed while others of us are not going to. And yet, church, can we find joy in that God? Even if it means that life is bad for you now. Will we rejoice? Will you fight to rejoice in God? Even if dawn never breaks for you. This side of heaven. Will we be able to be as the words that we say in a song that is, is coming from the book of Job? Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Will we sing a song to the one who is all that we need? Can we honestly say that? Will we find joy in that God? In the words of John Piper, he says, Not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature of the fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience and producing a peculiar glory, you will get because of that. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look at what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kids die, when you've got cancer at the age of 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you. 
and eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, do not lose heart, but take the truths of the day by day. Focus on them. Preach them to yourselves every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind, into your heart. Sing with confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. This is the illustration that we see in the book of Habakkuk as he goes from these deep, real complaints and doubts against God, but in trusting God, hearing his word, praying to him, seeking his character, God changes him and he begins to understand that all of this, though it appears to be meaningless, it is not meaningless, that God is doing something in the weight, in the sorrow, and that for us to have joy in that. For some of us, pain has an earthly shelf life. But for others, the darkness will not lift until either you and I die or Jesus returns. And yet, knowing that truth, brothers and sisters, this morning, we are encouraged, and I want to encourage you, and I need you to encourage me to not give up in the sorrow and the pain, but to rejoice, though this is really terrible. The Bible isn't telling us that these things aren't terrible. They are evil. They are terrible. They are horrific in very nature. And yet God is saying that joy is not the absence of grief, pain, and sorrow. No, it is, it is triumphant over those things. And so when you're going through that mess of life that you can say as horrific as this is, the joy of knowing God in salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is greater and eclipses the very pain and sorrow that you are going in today that enables you and I to embrace the waiting which gets wearisome and tiresome and all of those real things that we can focus on the gospel of Jesus even in the midst of death. This is the, the beauty of the gospel. Some of us are going to die faithfully waiting. I love what Dr. R.C. Sproul says, but we all need to know that God has put a time limit on your pain. And so we come to a response. I've noticed three responses very quickly that people do in the pain and sorrow. Is one, they walk away from God. You took my grandmother. You can't be God. I got cancer. You can't be God. I have tons of friends, acquaintances, family members who believe these very things. They got tired of waiting. And they walked away. And they're no longer following Jesus because they sought to dwell in their pain more than rejoice in their God. The second response that people do is they simply ignore God. And they prefer ignorance. Or they create really bad theology. Like God only blesses those who bless themselves. And they believe all sorts of things that is not found in Scripture. And they'll say things, well, my God would never do that. And they would pursue and press into ignorance rather than the God of the Bible. My prayer for us, Mission Church, is that we would not do those two things. That you would not walk away. Brothers and sisters, if, if you listen to this way in the future, I hope that the voice of, not myself, not of Pastor Eric, but the voice of God reminds you, whenever moment that you're going through, when you're listening to this, or hearing this again, that you would not walk away from God. And that you would not pursue ignorance, but that we would, in the midst of pain, that we would cling and embrace to God in spite of what we see. Many translate the word Habakkuk to mean embrace. And is that not what we see Habakkuk do? Embrace God. God is the gospel. 
God is not a liar. God is doing these things and they are not meaningless. May we embrace God. God will use whatever means necessary to bring us back to himself. This is the picture of the cross that we see inside of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seating at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this morning, there is so much more that needs to be said to this, but yet we are going to have to trust God in this moment to speak to you and I and the future versions of ourselves, if need be, and to our friends and to our family members. I want to encourage you this morning, no matter what is going through, what you're going through is real. It is real pain. It is real sorrow. It is real agony. It is real darkness. It is real depression. But but God is triumphant over those things. He is the God of our salvation. There is a time coming. It is deferred glory, yes, but there is a time coming when Jesus will come again. You will be restored. You will get this. You will think back and go, man, now that I know more about who God is, I would have done it exactly the same way that God, every thorn in my flesh was worth it to stand in your presence and to be reconciled to a holy, amazing, majestic King of kings and Lord of lords. So brothers and sisters, may we endure this race together. May we link arms. May we come alongside of each other and encourage each other not to give up, but to stand firm, to hold on in the wait. Find joy. Find joy. Let's pray.